Welcome to Strategic Dialogues, a podcast hosted by the Institute for Global Dialogue that aims to take a deep dive into pertinent issues in international relations, including geopolitical dynamics and governance, foreign policy analysis, and international diplomacy. My name is Faith Maber, Senior Researcher at the IGD. And on this um, episode, we are actually, we're actually very delighted to have Mr. Sami Hamdi as our expert guest. Um, and we are looking forward to talking about Turkey's foreign policy in Africa. Mr. Sami Hamdi is the editor-in-chief of the International Interest, an experienced foreign policy analyst and a seasoned consultant who has advised governments and global companies on the geopolitical dynamics in the Middle East. Uh, thank you for joining us, Sami. We have been looking forward to having uh, this very timely discussion, and I don't think I could have found anyone better to engage with on Turkey's engagement strategy in Africa. Thank you for having me, Faith, and it's an honor to be here. Yes, thank you. So I think let us start with the, the fact of, of why, why the attention on Turkey, because uh, from what I've been gleaning um, in the past uh, couple of years, um, a lot of attention on Turkey's foreign policy has been framed in the context of its geopolitical strategy in the Eastern Mediterranean and in the Central Maghreb in Libya. But before we even get to those uh, arguably interlinked fault lines, I think talk to us first about uh, what has framed Turkey's pivot uh, to Africa? I think um, uh, the long story short, it, it's important to understand the, what I call the socio-historical memory uh, of the region, of the Middle East region, and also the, the, uh, Turkey in particular. This idea that once upon a time, Turkey was the Ottoman Empire uh, ruling uh, countries from uh, Algeria all the way uh, eastwards towards uh, Oman, and that the World, World War I saw that the Ottoman Empire fall, and as a result, they had Ataturk who uh, managed to prevent Turkey from falling uh, under the uh, colonial influence and prevent the fate that perhaps Libya, Algeria and other countries uh, suffered later. And Ataturk decided that the best thing to do was to completely alter the identity of Turkey from a religious identity whereby it is the leader of the Muslim world to a, a very ethnocentric Turkish identity, which of course brought its own uh, consequences in alienating the Kurds uh, and the like. In other words, you've got a Turkish population or you had a Turkish population that rejected Ataturk's uh, uh, move to an ethnocentric identity and has long harbored a return for Turkey's role within the Muslim world as a power uh, that can actually assert itself and uh, sit as a, uh, a global power uh, in a number of global affairs. And Erdogan uh, is a product of that. Erdogan is a product of inheriting that history, inheriting uh, that socio-historical narrative that the decline of the Ottomans, that the defeat of the Ottomans was a disaster for the Muslim world, disaster for the Muslims, and that Ataturk uh, chained Turkey and chained uh, the ability of Turkey to express itself. And this is why we see that uh, Erdogan's uh, policy, Turkish policy that sees it assert itself, uh, is not a uniquely Turkish policy. It's more a retrospective return to a previous Turkish identity. And the reason why I say that is because you notice that the shift in Turkish policy is not necessarily towards better relations with Europe or better relations with the US, which is what Ataturk wanted. Erdogan has turned back the other way towards the likes of Pakistan, towards the likes of North Africa, and entering now into 
uh, areas of historical Muslim influence, whether that's Senegal, whether that's Mali, whether that's Nigeria, in the hope that he will continue to expand, uh, given that now he's particularly focused on West Africa. So it's about uh, Turkey now shifting in this particular way, and that brings with it its own uh, difficulties, because you have a Turkish population that's been educated one way over the past uh, six or seven decades, which is that Turkey is a secular country. The, it's all about the Turk. Uh, they used to put on the mountains in the eastern regions. The happiest man in the world is the one who says, uh, I am a Turk. But now you have Erdogan who is trying to say, no, our identity is bigger than this. It's larger than this. It incorporates North Africa. It incorporates West Africa. It incorporates Pakistan and the like. And it appears that while Erdogan is pushing this, the Turkish population is not entirely on board uh, at the moment. And that's why we see hesitation. In Syria, we saw Turkey intervene late. Uh, in Libya, we saw it intervene late. Uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, we saw it intervene late. And it only intervened once there was an agreement about to be made between the Israelis, the Egyptians, the, uh, the Cypriots uh, and the, the Greeks. In other words, uh, this pivot that we're seeing from Turkey uh, is not necessarily new, but rather a bid by Erdogan to turn 180 on the legacy of Ataturk and restore Turkey to what it was before. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting a sense that you're really doubling down on that um, assertion that it's Turkey and under Erdogan particularly that he's trying to um, reclaim uh, Turkey's foreign policy uh, prerogative and and now focusing the attention on Africa. I'm glad you mentioned the the Maghreb and and also his diplomatic advances in the rest of Africa. But before we get to even the the multifaceted engagement strategy that it's applied and and how it's it's also increasingly utilizing its soft power um, tools. Um, what I'm what I'm actually want want um, you maybe to expound on is how far back does this diplomatic advance or the plan to actually center on on Africa uh, uh, go back to because we've seen we saw a very key very um, huge uh, momentum I'd say maybe between 2010 and 2016 where we saw uh, Turkey opening a lot of embassies in in Africa and even most recently the trip by um, foreign the Turkish foreign minister to to uh, Guinea-Bissau to Mali to, to Senegal. Um, talk to us a little bit about uh, the determinants of, of this foreign policy, particularly in Africa. What do you think are the main determinants, apart from what you were saying about the foreign policy uh, reclaiming that, that identity um, um, under the Ottoman Empire, apart from that, what other um, determinants do you see driving its, its uh, advances in, in Africa? I think it's it's easier to understand it almost in a in a very mini timeline. So, 2003, Ak Party come to power. Everybody is worried that this is an Islamist leaning party that it's against the secular uh, values and the secular identity. So they come out and say, no, we're not Islamist. We respect the secular identity, and they try to get closer to Europe and they embark on this European accession process. France says Turkey is not part of Europe. We're not interested in having Turkey as part of Europe. And it will never be a part of Europe. It belongs to Asia Minor. So Turkey decides to turn towards the Arabs, to Saudi Arabia, to UAE, to uh, Qatar, to uh, the Gulf states in particular. Saudi Arabia says, I don't want uh, necessarily very warm relations with Turkey. I'm now the leader of the Muslim world. I don't want to give the likes of Erdogan an opportunity to affect that influence that I have. So let's limit the ties that we have with Turkey. Turkey decides to turn to its neighbors, Syria and Iran. 
but Iran is under, under sanctions and Syria is not necessarily a prosperous economy whereby it can provide Turkey with exactly what it needs. In light of these rejections, by the time it gets to 2010, the AK Party and Turkey are so frustrated with their inability uh, to essentially establish itself within an orbit and it continues to feel so isolated that it decides to turn towards Africa, to try to push towards Africa, particularly given that people at, in 2010 are talking about an economic miracle that Turkey has achieved in the, in the vast economic improvement that the AK Party oversaw from 2003 to 2010, which of course would later come under strain in 2014 onwards. But the fact of the matter is, Africa was the fourth choice uh, for Turkey. And when it got to 2010, Erdogan believed and the AK Party believed that they had enough clout and enough power to start exploring a potential alternative. And this is why I think this is one of the undercurrent or one of the dynamics that is less talked about. This idea that uh, while Turkey appears today to be exerting in a very calculated, very method methodological uh, soft power, the reality is that it is still a very reactive foreign policy. I wanted Europe, they said no. I wanted Arabs, they said no. Syria and Iran, I couldn't trust them. So now I'm going more towards Africa. But there's also another dynamic, which is that the more powerful Erdogan becomes, the more he's able to express his long-held ambitions and long-held dreams of this expansion of Turkish power. And given the resonance towards Turkish soft power in North Africa, in Pakistan, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, as a result of these very Muslim-centric uh, series that he's been uh, overseeing, whether that's Dirilish Ertuğrul, Resurrection of Ertuğrul, whether that's the Osman series or the like, uh, Erdogan believes that since I've managed to gain so much soft power in the likes of Algeria, in the likes of Egypt, in the likes of Tunisia, so much so that the Arabs now are so terrified of Turkey's expanding influence, I can go further. There are Muslim populations in Senegal, Muslim populations in Mali. If I can develop good relations with the governments over there and promote the economic ties there, I will also be able to exert Turkey's power there, uh, become a partner and become a power in, a less, in, in an untraditional way, whereby I don't have to rely on the US or Europe. I can now create an alternative block in which I might be able to assert myself. And that's why Erdogan talks about this, the world is bigger than five. This idea that Turkey might be able to create a block of, for example, uh, Turkey, Pakistan, Malaysia, Indonesia, Nigeria, Mali, uh, Senegal, South Africa, and the like, to rival the traditional blocs within the United Nations, for example. And this is why I think, so it's two dynamics. It's rejection from the orbits that Turkey wanted to be part of, and the rising and, and the rising power of Erdogan that has allowed him to take the reins of Turkish foreign policy without fear of a domestic backlash. Yeah, um, very interesting uh, point you make there about how in in also um, expanding and advancing and recalculating its its foreign policy. Um, I think it's important the point you've raised that this took um, one would say even uh, a long time in the making. It's not there's a sense that it, there's a tension between those who view it as um, a very reactive knee jerk response. But you've also, in giving us that timeline, I think you've begun to show that it has a very long pedigree. It's one that, that has been um, thought through. And I think it was a matter of finding the right uh, moment in history to actually now um, activate it, which is what we are seeing happening now in a very, um, almost very volatile geopolitical uh, context that we, that we are grappling with. And, and I also appreciate your point about the fact that even in its diplomatic advances in Africa, it's um, it's embraced a very multifaceted strategy. So there's there's the economic 
angle, there's the humanitarian angle, as you say, there's also the cultural um, um, diplomacy and, and, and the, the religious links that it also seeks to capitalize on. And we've seen also in North Africa where it's made inroads uh, into expanding ties with Algeria, with Tunisia, with Libya, which is which we'll come to in a moment. And that its, it's outreach has also included, you know, the greater East African region. It's extended to the Red Sea coast and into the Horn of Africa. And I think even interestingly, we've seen it opening a military facility in Mogadishu, Somalia. And, and uh, what what's what's fascinating about the 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 Somalia military base, the largest training base, it's actually the largest base out of Anatolia, and and this is a very significant strategic acquisition for Turkey in the Horn of Africa, and also in addition to that, it's also um, negotiated. Or, or I think I think there's a bit of a stalling in there, but it's negotiated an agreement with Sudan to open a dual use. Uh, civilian naval facility in in the port of Sudan. So in in all of this, what what one can also pick up on is that there is there's there's a particular logic that um, underpins Turkish uh, advancement in Africa. And and why I'm saying this, we see almost a, an accompaniment of a militarization of some sort. The the negotiations around not only military um, deals around military um, equipment and and military cooperation, but we also it's seeing seeing it pivot around its uh, idea of forward bases and its idea of the blue homeland um, strategy. So do you see um, do you foresee a Turkish model emerging and and one that like I'm saying that is linked to its blue homeland strategy and and also one that it's linked to um, it. Uh, advancing a Turkish-centered interregional uh, connectivity in the Afro-Mediterranean sphere. Um, talk to us about the model. If there is, if you see a model emerging, I think that the, the, the idea of the blue homeland has come up uh, recently as a in a bid to understand Turkish foreign policy, in a bid to understand the way in which Turkey is rising and establish these military bases. But I argue, and it's an unpopular opinion, that the reason we're mentioning the blue homeland is because. Uh, Erdogan's domestic situation requires him to tailor uh, his message and tailor his uh, uh, ambitions and deeply held beliefs into a nationalist language that the domestic audience can understand. I think the touting of the blue homeland ideology is a bid by Erdogan to calm sentiments uh, within Turkey that fear that Turkey is becoming too Islamized. This idea of restoring the Hagia Sophia uh, back to a mosque, this idea of uh, establishing Turkey within the Muslim world, of taking on uh, Islamic causes like Palestine, whereas Turkey was the first con our Muslim country to recognize Israel, Erdogan is on the on the on the process of trying to reverse that. The real this is why when I argue about the Blue Homeland, and this is why I mentioned at the beginning this idea about uh, the socio-historical memory as to the baggage that Erdogan carries that has been passed on from uh, two or three generations uh, since Ataturk. Because when you look at the countries that Erdogan has got involved in, these are countries with predominantly Muslim histories. Somalia, Sudan, Mali, where you had the, the, a caliphate once upon a time uh, in the 13th and 14th century. Uh, you look at Nigeria, you look at Senegal, uh, you look at uh, these uh, Niger, for example. As of yet, Turkey has yet to really push further and further into countries where perhaps there is less of a Muslim history because Turkey believes or Erdogan believes that that is the fertile ground that an Islamist rhetoric or an Islamic rhetoric that Erdogan uses will be able to find its space. 
given that domestically Turkey, the Turkish population, a lot of them are lambasting Erdogan uh, for pursuing personal ambitions uh, in his foreign policy. I think the use of the term the blue homeland is a bit almost as if Erdogan is saying, look, it's not just my policy. This is a policy of us Turks. This is us Turkey. This is Turkish power so that he can play on these nationalist tendencies so that they will go along with it. But I think the root of, of what Erdogan is doing uh, is more than that. With regards to the military base, uh, it's, uh, there are two dynamics to it. The first is that it's about Turkish power. It is about this idea of uh, Turkey becoming this power, emulating the likes of US, Russia, France, that have established military bases across the whole world. If you open a map of the US military bases, you'll see how it surrounds China and exerts its leverage against China. You see in the Middle East how it keeps the Middle East states uh, under control through the use of its numerous military bases. But the second dynamic is also that for a lot of the Sahel countries, Mali, Niger and the like, we have to talk quite realistically in that a lot of their policies and politics is dominated by foreign interference, whether that's the like of France uh, or France in particular. Let, let's talk honestly. I mean, I am originally from North Africa. I can tell you about French influence all day long. But the reality is that France is able to assert itself through its military bases, through the assertion that, Fra that French acts as the lingua franca and through its uh, quite frankly, uh, bold interference whenever it feels that the politics are veering away from French interests. So it will intervene and facilitate a coup or facilitate the rise of a particular leader in order to ensure French influence. The Turkish military bases are designed in the grand scheme of things to be able to give some of these African states an alternative to France. So if France is going to use force to assert itself, they can rely on Turkish power to assert itself. And we saw in the Qatar blockade in the Middle East, when Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Bahrain and UAE blockaded Qatar and there was talk of a possible invasion of Qatar, Turkey established a military base when the US uh, were considered uh, not interested in protecting Qatar. And that Turkish military base uh, facilitated uh, a reconsideration on the part of the, those particular Gulf states. So I think it's, it's these two particular dynamics. I know that the Blue Homeland is being talked about everywhere, about this idea of wider Turkish policy. But I do argue that Turkey post-Erdogan and pre-Erdogan are two very different entities, are two very different policies and two very different trajectories. And I think a lot of the backlash that Erdogan is getting is because there is an, a, an, an undercurrent that realizes that if Erdogan continues as he is, Turkey is going to look very different after he goes than it did pre-2003. Um, yes, Sami. Uh, so something, something you've said also made me um, wonder, and maybe it's something that you can, you can, interesting points you raise about the blue land, um, uh, blue homeland um, notion. But to what extent do you think um, the build-up of Turkey's own defense industry? is correlated to its uh, strategic reorientation in, in its foreign policy, the, 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 the defense industry to a large extent. And, and how and that's framed to the question earlier I asked about whether there is a, a, a Turkish model emerging in, in terms of the military dimension um, of, its, of its advances. I think when you, uh, this is better understood in terms of the internal uh, debate uh, within the uh, I don't want to use the word Islamist, but within, let, 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 let's say, the, the, the Muslim communities, which is, to what extent can uh, the region and countries such as the Gulf countries and Turkey uh, exert independence uh, against the, the, the forces that are dominant in the region, uh, in particular the U.S.? Uh, to what extent uh, are we able to exert 
uh, our own policies and our own identities uh, in light of the fact that this is a region where uh, we've seen uh, assassinations of leaders, we've seen uh, coups, we've seen uh, overthrow of regimes, we've seen uh, an, a bid to uh, have democratic elections after the Arab Spring, only to see uh, military coups afterwards and those coups being recognized internationally. And the reality is that even in Turkey, uh, amongst the elements of the AK Party, there was a fierce debate between the likes who believed in diplomacy and the likes who believed in establishing their own force. Uh, so I think uh, the Erdogan trend is more we need to develop a, a sort of self-sufficiency that will allow us to leverage ourselves, whether that's against the US, whether that's against uh, Russia. And I think that's one of the, 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 the important elements we've seen driving uh, Turkish uh, desire to intervene in Libya and the like. But there also, there's also another very important dynamic that I think uh, perhaps uh, gives a better picture, which is that the world is changing. And it's changing in that when you look at the, the, the post-Arab Spring world in the region, uh, you see that the US did not have a clear policy. Neither did Europe uh, and Syria descended into civil war and Libya descended into a civil war. The reason I mentioned that Turkey's policy is reactive is because initially when Syria entered the civil war, Turkey was looking to cooperate with the US and the EU to contain the conflict. But when it didn't see that support, it decided to intervene unilaterally because it feared this Kurdish separatist movement in northern Syria. When it intervened unilaterally, EU and the US conceded uh, to Turkey and offered uh, to recognize a safe zone in, in, in Syria. Turkey suddenly realized that if we use force, we are going to be recognized. If we don't use force, we are going to be ignored. On the eastern Mediterranean, uh, Turkey for a long time was saying, let's negotiate, let's discuss access to gas, even let's discuss with Israel, we have no problem with it. But uh, Israel, Egypt, Cyprus and Greece were so concerned uh, by what's going on in Turkey and what Erdogan represents, that they sought to decide between themselves to talk about building a pipeline that excludes Turkey. So Turkey decided to use force and now they're sitting at the table uh, with Europe, with Greece. So Turkey is saying, if I use force, then I am listened to. And that's accelerating this idea that Turkey needs to be independent in its uh, defense industry, in its uh, foreign policy, in order to be able to leverage itself. This is why we've seen Turkey lean on Russia against the U.S. when the U.S. pressures it, and then go back to the U.S. against Russia whenever Russia presses, pressures it. Turkey is now displaying a sort of semi-independence that none of the Gulf states, or indeed most of the states in the Middle East, are unable to uh, express. So I think that's why when we're looking at uh, this idea of Turkey developing its own arms, Turkey developing, uh, it's uh, trying to pursue this sort of self-sufficiency. It's part of this long-term aim, and I always assert this, I always feel this is very underappreciated, particularly in Western think tanks. This socio-historical narrative in that the current situation that the Middle East is in, that Turkey is in and the like, is a situation of defeat, is a situation that has been brought about as a result of a defeat against Western powers, and therefore everything is geared towards this idea of trying to liberate and trying to become uh, more independent. I think that's a value that's greatly uh, undervalued because this is what drives Erdogan's perception of the world. This is what drives the Gulf perception of the world. This is what drives the Gulf desire to bring US military bases to protect the individual kingdoms because they fear that they are they're unable to protect the kingdoms themselves. It comes from a position of weakness. So Turkey is trying to pursue a, a sort of strength in order to reverse that position of weakness. And because of the current dynamics, because of Trump in the US, because of this polarized environment and the breaking of traditional uh, international blocks, Turkey has suddenly found the space, whether that's in Libya uh, or in Syria or now in Africa in particular, 
to be able to expand without any of the traditional repercussions that might have happened or might have taken place if this had taken place in the early 2000s when the U.S. was still very dominant, very strong, very assertive and very keen to maintain the global order as it was. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you you've um sort of gone into the the hot button um issues and one as you've mentioned is uh Turkey's involvement in the Libyan conflict it's it's military backing to the government of national accord which um some would say turned the tide of the the civil war um enabling the the GNA to completely hold um Haftar's Uh, campaign to capture Tripoli, the pushback um, of his forces towards um, Sirt, which which uh, later on we've seen the CC labeling it as Egypt's red line, and we've also seen tied to this um, uh, Turkish uh, Libyan uh, interaction is also the negotiation of the economic cooperation and the maritime deals with Libya, um, which are ultimately also circle back to to the the question of the greater geopolitical game in the in the Middle East around. Um, um gas exploration and tied to what you've said the idea for Turkey to actually reassert its independence as a as a foreign policy actor in the in the Mediterranean and linking back to that so apart from emerging as Tripoli's uh, security guarantee in this in this context and apart from cementing its power status in the in North Africa i mean we've seen Turkish air force uh, presence at the Alwatia um airbase so one can also see turkish involvement in libya as a breakout strategy as you've mentioned um i don't know if it would be correct in saying that part of it is it was trying to break out of that siege mentality uh idea around the east med and also in a way as ca- of countering its strategic isolation in the in the east uh, eastern mediterranean so the fault lines in in the east and in the central mediterranean seem to be uh, increasingly interlinked uh, do you also see that um, interlinkage between the two the two geopolitical flashpoints i think uh, what you said you you've hit the nail on the head and and i always argue that for all the talk that turkey intervened to rescue the internationally recognized government i've always argued that turkey intervened to break the maritime chokehold that it felt was forming on the mediterranean by the likes of Egypt, Israel, Cyprus, uh, Greece and Italy uh, to some extent when Turkey thought that this chokehold would be finally completed if Haftar took Tripoli that's when Turkey got involved and that's why there's a famous uh, arabic saying in the al'amalu binniyati every act has an intention and we should always judge things based on their intention uh, and this is why uh, when we saw that Turkey intervened in the GNA uh, many people were watching to see would it go south to Fezzan and take uh the some of the oil areas there or would they try to go to sirt uh in a bid to maintain the coastline and the fact that they asserted sirt over the south suggests that turkey's interests were only the coastline and only asserting itself on the mediterranean in order to break that maritime uh, chokehold and i think turkey has acted uh, accordingly uh, in this regard just like in syria it intervened only because uh, the refugee crisis was becoming too much and the kurdish separatists were becoming stronger and carving out a uh, territory that might affect uh, turkey's domestic uh, stability and that's why i think it's very reactionary uh, turkey's policy and i think even in the aftermath of libya the inability of turkey to establish a coherent uh, policy that might see some sort of reunification of the libyan factions shows to what extent that turkey's involvement uh, is very much uh, uh, pragmatic 
geopolitical, trying to extract as much as possible. And I think the numerous delegations that ended up going to Tripoli to try to implement some of those agreements were a sign that, that Saraj, the head of the government of national accord, was reluctant to uh, throw his weight entirely with Turkey and wanted to keep channels open with the US, with Germany and the like. And then I also argue that, of course, Turkey made the, the, the catastrophic mistake of mocking uh, Sisi's initiative for the Cairo uh, initiative, because we have to remember that when Turkey originally intervened, everybody was was thinking, my goodness, the Turks are going to completely change everything in Libya. And I think had they left that to the imagination and acted in a more magnanimous manner and accepted the Cairo initiative, which would have seen elections in the West and the East and then a unification uh, government, Turkey would have been able to preserve this image as this uh, almighty power that nobody knows the extent to which it is actually strong. And I think that imagination would have worked in its favor. But the fact it was unable to take Sirt uh, only seemed to say to the Egyptians that, okay, these are the limits of Turkish power. So now we can deal within this particular framework. So I think you're correct in that. Uh, it's very pragmatic, very geopolitical. And I think uh, this is the reason why uh, when we talk about the, the, the methodology of Turkish foreign policy, whilst there are undercurrents of a long-term aim to establish Turkish policy abroad and restore it to the power that it once was, the reality is that a lot of what we see from Turkish foreign policy today has been enabled by circumstances that have been outside of control of Turkey. In other words, but for uh, Haftar attacking Tripoli, I don't think Turkey would have rushed into Libya the manner it did. But for the refugee situation and the Kurdish separatist groups uh, in northern Syria, I don't think Turkey would have intervened militarily uh, in Syria. In other words, these decisions are not driven, the military decisions are not driven by ideology, and they're not driven by a long-term plan. They're driven by a reaction to a very imminent situation that Turkey wishes never took place in the first place. Turkey wishes this situation never arose. But after Turkey has intervened, it's sort of like, oh, wow, guys, like, wait a minute, we actually did well. I mean, in Syria, we actually protected Idlib. In Libya, we actually drove Haftar back. This is fantastic. And I think this euphoria, this surprise is what is the reason why any subsequent diplomatic policy received from Turkey is often uh, stumbling, is often uh, not necessarily coherent. Uh, it's often rushed. It's often uh, lacking in any particular vision. On the economic front, however, Turkey is very methodological. It is, it, there's, a, there's a clear methodology in Turkey's economic policy in the way it's going into Algeria, in the way it's trying to lure Mali, in the way it's trying to lure uh, Senegal, in the way that it succeeded in uh, kicking out the UAE and Somalia and maintaining Somalia uh, as, as a key ally. Uh, I think Turkish Turkey understands economy very well, but not necessarily how to capitalize uh, on its military expeditions in, in its foreign policy. Um, interesting point you raised there about the, the how the the constraints and enablers of Turkish foreign policy stem from um, almost not only a convergence of of um, external and exogenous factors, but how also it's trying to also find a balance with its 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 own domestic policy and foreign policy um, goals and and trying to just navigate um, all these constraints and and enablers and um, you, you've you've touched quite deeply on the Libyan um, conundrum but I think let's go to the other hot button issues which is the 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 much talked about tension between Turkey and Greece on the in the Eastern Mediterranean and how this is reflective of how interwoven 
um, the mix is in terms of interests, there's systemic um, rivalry, there's even the 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 use or the abuse, some would say, of the international law of the seas, and all this con, con almost converge in that heated uh, geopolitical flashpoint of the of the Eastern Mediterranean and, and in the and in the Mediterranean basin. Um, so talk to us about untangle some of the East Med um, geopolitical uh, mores for us a bit. I think that uh, it, it's important uh, for, for anybody listening to understand that. Uh, Turkey uh, does not enjoy conflict because its domestic situation struggles to handle conflict. It's important to understand that uh, a lot of the domestic uh, public opinion does not really care much about foreign policy. And indeed, uh, w when you look at the domestic debate within Turkey, uh, you see that the issue of refugees has only been possible because of Erdogan's sheer power and that the population uh, are quite uh, disturbed by the economic impact of taking in the refugees and they believe that they're suffering as a result of taking in these refugees and it's only Erdogan's policy that is almost forcing the Turkish people uh, to maintain the presence of these uh, refugees. I think when it comes to Libya, when you ask a lot of the domestic public opinion what they think about Turkish intervention in Libya, a lot of them say, why are we going all the way to Libya? I mean, what's our interest in getting involved in Libya? I don't. So I think uh, the, the domestic uh, scene does not allow Turkey to pursue such an ambitious military uh, foreign policy. And I think this is important to understand because it was also a limiting factor in Turkey's expedition in Syria when it lashed out against Assad's forces. The reason I mentioned that is that this is the reason why Turkey is far more amenable to dialogue than is often suggested in the press or that is often suggested by analysts. Turkey prefers to talk out its problems because it still believes that it's in this awkward phase whereby it's walking a tightrope between prosperity and disaster and it wants to play the safe road. So it wants to talk with the likes of Greece, it wants to talk with Egypt as, as we're seeing recently, it wants to talk with France. But the problem is that in the East Mediterranean in particular is that there's deep suspicions over the trajectory that Turkey is going. There's deep suspicions that Turkey is no longer a power that is contained within its borders, but that Turkey now is involved in North Africa, it's involved in the Middle East, it's heavily involved in Azerbaijan, it's now sitting on the same table as Russia and the US discussing some of the world's global uh, conflicts. It now has good ties with Germany at the expense of France. It's now trying to uh, launch overtures to Italy. In other words, it's becoming a power in the region that quite frankly uh, a bit too powerful and this is why uh, what's interesting is that there appears to be a a misunderstanding between the two parties in that Egypt, Greece, Israel, Cyprus and Italy want to contain Turkey. They believe that uh, uh, the Turkey is better when Erdogan goes and we have another regime that is insular once more and this is why we've seen that when it negotiates gas and gas, gas exploration in the region, it's been excluding Turkey from the talks, excluding Turkey from the discussions, and trying to assert itself as a bloc in limiting the range of sea that Turkey is allowed to access. Turkey is saying, listen, come, let's talk about it. Let's share the gas exploration. Let's share this. But the other countries are suspicious. They say, we don't want to share with you because we believe that you're a bully and we don't want uh, dealings with you and we're not happy with the way that you're operating. And this is why I think that when you look at the East Mediterranean from an objective perspective, you realize that Turkey acted very late. Turkey started uh, asserting itself very late. 
Turkey kept giving hope and faith in this idea of negotiations, even while it was giving out harsh rhetoric uh, from Erdogan or from the, the government. So this gas fine that's been found uh, in this disputed area near Egypt, Israel, Lebanon uh, and Turkey, Turkey is saying, I want access to it too. But the other countries are saying, listen, if we're patient, Erdogan's domestic situation will mean he might lose the next elections. Let's wait and see what Turkey will look like afterwards. In particular, also, it's important to note that uh, Turkey uh, has been antagonizing the EU because of its complicated relationship with regards to support for refugees. So Turkey expected support from the EU. That support wasn't forthcoming. And so Turkey has been trying to use every issue to leverage against the EU in order to seek that support that the EU, quite frankly, are not giving. So it's using the East Mediterranean to say, give me money for refugees. It's using the issue in Syria to say, give me money uh, for refugees. Turkey is saying, listen, I'm bearing the burden. I'm looking after 4 million refugees. I've got Kurdish separatists on my border. I've got an economic crisis. I've got Russia bullying me on this side and US trying to bully me uh, on the other side. Europe, let's work together and cooperate with one another. But Europe seems to be mired in age-old debates of Islam and democracy, Islamist identity, secular identity. France in particular seems to have an aversion to the Islamic tendencies uh, of Turkey, asserting that Turkey is not part of Europe. But more important than that, and I think the, th the, the, the final dynamic that really complicates the East Med has nothing to do with the East Med. The dynamic that complicates everything more than, more than gas, more than the suspicions of Turkey, more than the lack of negotiations, is the fact that Turkey's foreign policy now is competing in France strongholds. France dominated Algeria, dominated Tunisia, dominated Mali, dominated Senegal, uh, it dominated Niger. These are all countries where Turkey is rising at a rapid rate in its influence. France is livid. France has seen its ally Bouteflika fall uh, in Libya. It's seen its ally Bin Ali fall in Tunisia. It's seen, uh, it hasn't seen any tangible rewards for its NATO intervention in Libya. It's seen in the Sahel, in Mali, in, in Niger, people are protesting in their thousands against French operations, against terrorism, uh, against French pr troop presence. France, French troops have been mired in scandals in the Sahel. All of these has created an environment where Turkey is presenting itself as an alternative. And France is livid. France is so angry that it is now getting involved in the East Med and saying to Greece, listen, I'm standing with you. Go ahead. Go after Turkey. I will make sure that the EU does not give does not uh, give in to Turkey in any way whatsoever. And I think this is why when we focus only on the East Med, we take away from the bigger picture, which is that this is a power struggle in that there are new powers rising. This polarized environment, the breakup of the traditional international blocs has given the space for the likes of Turkey to start rising, for the likes of the UAE to start asserting itself, for the likes of some of the African countries to pursue uh, some sort of more independent policy, for the likes of Brexit, for the likes of the EU now debating whether it can continue to exist. It is in this environment that the East Mediterranean takes place, in that the breakdown of the international institutions means that Turkey believes that it has no recourse to negotiations and has to use force to be listened to. And it appears from the Turkish perspective that it's working. They're now sitting with Greece, they're now sitting with France, they're now sitting with the EU. And this is why I think Turkish foreign policy is a result of the inability of Europe to engage in dialogue when Turkey badly wanted it. Yeah, uh, certainly, uh, Sami, and I agree with you about you. You you've actually got to the to the core of the matter because um, in 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 its, in the interest of its foreign policy, Turkey is not keen on um, stocking up 
um, conflict in, in its Mediterranean neighborhood, particularly because majority of its, obviously, its trade um, traverses the, the eastern Mediterranean. So its interest will not be served by having that that um, neighborhood and in, 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 um, the Mediterranean basin being uh, destabilized. But also, um, it's interesting also how you've, 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 and I like your point about not only focusing only on the on the the issue and the tensions in the east med but to have that big picture assessment of how it also links to i would say turkey's uh, one of its its foreign policy goals is also to have to to be um, to enhance interregional connectivity so the the energy connectivity the commercial connectivity creating this this um Afro-Mediterranean um, interregional uh, uh, connectivity along the, the Mediterranean, and that that would argue that it's 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 a key pinnacle of its of its foreign policy um, um, advancement and goals. But like you've said, in 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 doing that, it's also ruffled uh, Paris's uh, feathers, and and that's why we also see the kind of reaction that we've seen from from France. And, and it's interesting because I think it was today and uh, and also yesterday we are, we are seeing this emergency meeting of the, the EU Council and, and everybody is keen to see uh, what happens in terms of de-escalating those tensions. So turning back to this systemic rivalry, do you think that um, as Turkey makes its diplomatic advances in Africa and, and like you've said, including the areas that France has considered its sphere of influence, Algeria, uh, Tunisia, and also the 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 the, the traditional West African um, uh, France's uh, ground. I mean, uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Chad. Yeah, as as it's doing that, do you think that now also as a reactive component of of France, it will double down on its um, on taunt with uh, the, the the Riyadh and with uh, the the UAE and also with Egypt? And that this will also entrench that rivalry in Africa, apart from just the East Med. I think a hundred percent. I think it's 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 regurgitated often amongst the African people. This idea that foreign intervent intervention. Uh, prevents uh, progress. Foreign intervention has ensured that there is corruption, that there is lack of economic development. We hear it everywhere. I mean, uh, when, when I went to Ghana, Nigeria, when I went to all these different, whether it's it's the same uh, things that we hear in Tunisia, in Algeria, uh, and the like, this idea that uh, uh, people say that foreign intervention, intervention does not allow us to become strong, does not allow us to become uh, economically uh, developed. In other words, there is a sense amongst public opinion that foreign intervention is uh, counterproductive to the development of a lot of these African states. And I think it's very important building on that uh, in that uh, Macron was so upset with the protests that took place in the Sahel region against France that he summoned, and I intentionally use that word, that he summoned the Sahel uh, presidents to uh, France in order to talk with them. In other words, instead of Macron giving the legitimacy and respect to some of these presidents, he summoned them as if they were vassals and said, listen, I need you to deal with this anti-French opinion. I need you to stop these people criticizing France because we're there to help you against terrorism. But nobody in that region believed that France uh, was doing so. And I think it's important to understand it from Paris's perspective. And I always, I always argue that politics is the science of human relations. It's not just that Turkey is advancing in the region. 
Paris is terrified that its influence is waning, that it's no longer involved in global affairs. It's not involved in Syria. It's not involved. Uh, it, it's, its influence in West Africa is struggling. In Europe, it can no longer get its way. The U.S. is ignoring France in discussions with Russia and the like. And this is why we see France always coming in from the back door, uh, discussing with Russia while Germany is criticizing uh, Russia, uh, presenting its own peace plan when Germany and the U.S. are trying to present their own peace plan uh, in uh, Libya. And I think the more Turkey advances, the more African states start to assert themselves, irrespective of Turkey, the more we will see France aggressively trying to assert itself, trying to rescue those spheres of influence that, that it has. And this is the reason why when we're looking at the crises in Libya uh, or even in the Gulf, it's all about this idea of traditional spheres of influence coming under threat. So Saudi Arabia and the UAE, for example, in order to become regional powers, they need to lean on Israel and they need to rely, uh, lean on the US. That results in public opinion turning against them because the Arab populations are against any ties with Israel and they see the US as a colonial power. So when they see Turkey uh, re repelling the, the US, when they see Biden upset with Turkey, when they see Turkey uh, leveraging against Russia, leveraging against the US, and giving out an Islamic, Islamic leaning uh, rhetoric that resonates with a lot of the Arab populations, the reality is that that anger towards Saudi Arabia and the UAE leads to closer affinity with Turkey, which allows Turkey to assert its soft power, particularly in countries with that Muslim history of Mali, Niger, uh, uh, Senegal, uh, and the like, and Nigeria, where France is trying to assert itself. So where France relies on the regime to assert its influence, Turkey is suddenly winning over public opinion in these regions, which is more powerful than the regime and threatens an overhaul of the regime that inevitably will benefit Turkey and not benefit France. Because it's become clear in the Arab Spring that when the people protest and overthrow the regimes, the governments that they choose are not necessarily those that lean towards a Western alignment of policies. And this is the reason why we saw a containment of the Arab Spring as opposed to a promotion, as opposed to a, 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 a support of the Arab Spring. We saw Sisi overthrew a, overthrow a democratic elected president and then recognized and giving a speech at the Nelson Mandela uh, panel in the United Nations, for example. And this is why to, the direct answer to your question is we're going to see more tension. We're going to see more conflict, particularly as France, particularly as some of these traditional powers such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE start to feel this sort of hysteria that Turkey is winning over the public opinion. It, it, it's, this is not about saying that Turkey is right. But this is about the approach. You have one side that believes in top-down, install a regime and make sure that regime can assert itself. And you have Turkey, which is saying, let's develop that soft power, let's win over public opinion, and then later on in the long-term strategy, a government will eventually be produced which leans more towards us. And I think that's the crux of the issue. That's why when we look at issues such as the East Med, it could have been solved so easily many years ago if they had just included Turkey in a pipeline deal. And then we would never have heard of this blue homeland. We would never have heard uh, of the, uh, the escalating rhetoric. And Turkey might even not have never got involved in Libya. And we might even have let Haftar uh, take Tripoli. But the reality is that the fears and the concerns in the bigger picture, this idea that if we leave Turkey alone, it might actually become uh, this superpower that we will not be able to handle. I think that is what drives uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the conflict and a lot of the aversion that we see to dialogue in a lot of these issues. And I'll finish on this point. The gamble is this. The gamble is that a lot of this is Erdogan-driven, not Turkey-driven. It's Erdogan-driven. It's Erdogan's belief. It's Erdogan's desire 
to restore this long-lost identity that was successfully defeated in World War One. In other words, the approach of France, the approach of the EU, the approach of the US, as Biden himself said, is that we have to support Turkish opposition to bring about change within Turkey, remove Erdogan, and bring back this ideology, the secular ideology of Turkey that was insular, that stayed within its borders, and that will make Turkey return to its position as the guardsman of the southeast border of Europe, and no more than that. Yeah, and and I think it's also important for, for us who... Um, also follow and analyze uh, a lot of foreign policy developments in Africa. I think it's also important for us to mention, like you've said, there's that evolving geopolitical context. There's all this attention now on just the importance of Africa um, as a geostrategic location. But even in in, in saying that, um, Africans and African states are not passive actors. I mean, there's, there's certainly, they're suddenly warming up to this game of, of, of uh, asserting their own um, agency. And, and I think another example of this, as far as Turkey is concerned, is, for instance, in the tension around the, the Ethiopian um, Grand uh, Renaissance Dam and the Blue Nile, when as a result of, obviously, uh, a lot of pressure from Egypt, we've seen also Ethiopia um, looking to also expand its, its, its bilateral ties and its engagement with Turkey as a counterbalance um, in, in that sort of um, situation. But there's also um, a, an increasing trade relationship between the, the two, and it's also managed to, to um, influence and, and uh, shape its policy, its obvious foreign policy towards Somalia. And this also has opened up um, other avenues of cooperation also with, with, with Turkey as an ally. So these are just some of the, the ways in which um, if African actors are also leveraging their position in, in this uh, geopolitical uh, site and, and, and geopolitical competition that we are seeing happening in, in the region. And as a last point, I think, um, like you've said, it's, it's Turkish foreign policy as is currently constituted is very much Erdogan uh, driven, but um, do you think that there's a risk of overstretch that um, Turkey should also walk a fine line? It shouldn't um, its its posture, its um, almost some would say very aggressive posture, should not outpace um, its own uh, relations with Africa. Do you think there's a risk of overstretch in that regard? I think uh, Erdogan's rhetoric and Turkey's rhetoric to Africa is is, is not particularly aggressive uh, at all. In fact, it's very cautious, uh, very keen not to step on the toes uh, of the African governments. Uh, we've seen in the way that it's approached Algeria, it's taken extensive means to allay fears amongst the Algerian government that Turkey might use soft power against the Algerian government. So in other words, for example, there, there is a famous incident where Turkey wanted to build a mosque, but the Algerians insisted that Erdogan should not be allowed to open that mosque uh, at the opening because the Algerian government did not want Algerians to see Erdogan as this big Islamic leader uh, who was coming to restore this sort of identity uh, in Algeria. And Turkey respected that. Turkey did not uh, insist on that uh, at all. I think Turkey uh, is very uh, aggressive in its rhetoric to Europe. It's very aggressive on its rhetoric when it comes to the US and Russia and on uh, the Gulf and the Middle East. But its rhetoric is completely different than the African states. When it approaches Mali and Senegal and Niger and Somalia and Ethiopia and the like, Turkey is uh, in, in, in an extraordinary fashion actually comes in uh, in a very uh, humble manner. We're here to look for economic ties. 
we're here to develop bilateral relations, uh, perhaps even develop a block in the future whereby we might cooperate with one another. We're not here to colonize like the French uh, once did or the Italians or the like. We're here to be a partner. We are speaking to you on the same level. We are equals. And I think that's why we see Ethiopia happy to engage with Turkey. That's why Mali and Senegal and the like are happy to receive the overtures from Turkey. That's why Algeria, which is a tradi traditionally very suspicious country. Remember, Algeria went through a 1990 civil war because of this identity issue uh, between the Islamists and, and, and the secular ide ideologies. Algeria has warmly received uh, Turkey's economic drive, partly, of course, as a result of its own economic crisis. But the reality is that Turkey's approach to the African states is very measured. It's very considered. It's not like Macron who summons uh, uh, African presidents to France and dictates to them what they should do, tell your people to stop criticizing France or, or, or the like. And that's why I think uh, Turkey is heavily reliant on soft power in Africa. It's not there to step on people's toes. It's there to gradually build the friendship, gradually uh, build the relation. Not necessarily for friendship's sake. I'm not saying that Turkey is an angel, but I'm saying that the approach to the African states is very different from its approach to Europe or approach from the Eastern Mediterranean. And that's why it's been so successful. So if you're the Mali president or the new one as a result of the recent coup, or if you're Senegal's president, you are not seeing Turkey as a threat because Turkey is coming in gradually and only bringing in benefit so far, at least uh, at, at the moment. And I think the, 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 the methodology of Turkey whereby it tries to win over public opinion may even improve the legitimacy of some of these particular regimes if they can utilize it in the correct manner. And lastly, it's important to understand it. And of course, you, you are better placed to comment on this. But from my own perspective, from my own uh, research and from my own experience uh, within the African states and as an African myself, uh, there is this belief that for the African states, to be able to assert themselves, to protect that agency that has been gradually developing as a result of the changing global dynamics, it's important to have alternatives. South Africa itself entered into the BRICS uh, alliance uh, with the likes of Russia, India, uh, Brazil and the like as a bid to uh, expand its options uh, in the world and not rely solely on one particular orbit. And that allows South Africa to exert greater agency and continue to be a leader in the conflict, whereby we have the likes of Tabo Mbeki and the like negotiating peace in Sudan and getting involved in Addis Ababa and getting involved in, in the Renaissance Dam and the various different crises, instead of relying on, the, on, on, on outsiders of the continent coming in and dealing uh, with these issues. I think the African states appreciate that there needs to be an alternative of options, particularly given that in recent times for the Sahel regions, they've lacked the leverage against France. They've had to abide by much of France's policies because they lack alternative leverage. Turkey offers that alternative leverage. And this is why uh, in wh where there is option, there is room to maneuver. And in just as the same way that Turkey has been able to capitalize on it, the African states are also able to capitalize on it. And that's why I think they're receptive to Turkey and not necessarily suspicious because the, me the methodology is very different, very measured, and it fits perfectly with this perfect storm in the international environment whereby so many opportunities have suddenly been created. And now it's a scramble to see who can take advantage of it. Uh, and on that very um, important point about the measured approach about um, Africa also enhancing its uh, room to maneuver in an era of um, expanding and, and shifting geopolitical dynamics and its need to also um, identify and uh, diversify its strategic partnerships. I think we're going to end it there. Uh, Sami, thank you very much for what has been a certainly very thorough, very insightful, and I'm sure very enlightening conversation.
Thank you very much for having me, Faith. Thank you.